Well, this morning we're continuing our studies in the Gospel of John under the overall title, Life in His Name. And this morning we're looking at John chapter 9. I think because of time we'll only be able to look at part of it. But um, nevertheless, it's a great story where Jesus comes and heals a man who has been born blind. And uh, I put a picture up on the screen a couple of weeks ago of the Mourn Mountains, and no one was able to guess where it was. So I wonder, can anyone have any greater success? It probably isn't that clear, but uh, can anybody tell me where that might be? And Aaron? No. Okay. The Campsies. Absolutely wrong. It is actually the highest mountain in England which is Scarfell. Uh, for probably most Scots, they probably think it's not really a mountain at all. And, uh, but anyway, it, there's been a big argument uh, in uh, the area recently with National Trust and Mountain Rescue and local people because what they want to do is to put signposts on the mountain. And of course, some people think, that's ridiculous, you know the way, like, maybe 30 years ago, you would drive through the country and you would never see a sign? And now everywhere's littered with signposts. And so the same is true up the mountains. So mountain rescuers say, there's not a week goes past when we end up having to come out in the worst of weather because some people have come totally unprepared without the right clothing. They don't even have a compass. They just turn up and think that they can use their mobile phone to navigate wherever they want to go up and down the mountain. So there's this big debate of saying, you know, we're really fed up and we're putting our lives at risk by being called out onto the mountain all the time. So in the most difficult parts where there's real danger, let's put some signage up so that we don't end up being called out so often. Of course, one of the problems is that whatever the outcome, the important thing is not the signs. In the final analysis, the signs should never be the things that excite us. What excites us ultimately is the destination. So whether in a couple of years' time there are signs in Scarfeld or not, ultimately it doesn't really matter. What matters is what the signs point you toward, warning you of the dangers, but also pointing you in the right direction to the summit. So that whenever you reach the summit, You can look out over uh, the rest of the mountains and admire the brilliance of the view that you see. And of course, one of the dangers when we come to the Gospels is that we focus on the signs that Jesus gives to us in a very narrow way. And we fail to comprehend that actually the signs themselves are not what's ultimately important. It's what they represent and what they point to. So we had Jesus turning the water into wine. That was the first sign, a sign that reminded us that Jesus was the Messiah who came in power and was able to do miraculous things. And then we had the healing of the official son at Capernaum. Then we had a paralytic made well at Bethesda. And then we had a fourth sign, which was the feeding of the 5,000. 
And again, a great, and you can imagine everyone talking. Do you know what Jesus did? But the important thing is not that Jesus broke bread and fed 5,000 people. It's what the sign pointed toward. That Jesus is the one who is the bread of life. The one who ultimately can satisfy our deepest longings. And then we also had the sign of Jesus walking on the water. And there are seven signs in all. But John sees John chapter 9 in the healing of the blind man from birth as the sixth sign. So it's a great wee story. It's a sort of wee story that we'll tell to the children uh, in Sunday school and so on. But what matters to us this morning is not so much the ins and outs of the story, but what the sign points to. That's what's really important and what should excite us and enthuse us as we think about it today. So let's read at least part of the story and uh, in chapter 9. And we'll read through from verses 1, perhaps 2 to 12. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And after saying this, he did something that we would probably tell off our kids for. After saying this, he went, ah, spat on the ground, uh, made some mud with his saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was, others not. Now, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, yeah, I'm the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. So, a great story. A sign, but a sign pointing to something much more important. And I want us to reflect in this story under four headings this morning. Firstly, Jesus sees us as we really are. Jesus sees us as we really are. The passage simply says, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. But the whole grammatical structure of the sentence seems to imply that this was the most important focus for Jesus as he walked along the road. As he walked along the road, he sees this man. It reminds us of other stories where Jesus encounters individuals. For example, do you remember the woman at the well? And uh, we read in the opening verses 
Jesus said, I, I must needs go through Samaria. And he, we realize he actually didn't have to. You know, geographically, he didn't have to go that way. But he had to go that way because there was someone within him that knew that there was a person he wanted to encounter. He knew that he wanted to have an engagement with this woman at the well and see her life transformed. I must needs go through because she was there, not because geographically it was demanded. Or even the story of Zacchaeus. Whenever Zacchaeus is hiding up the tree, trying to pretend that he's not really there, but mad inquisitive. And uh, Jesus comes along and he sort of looks up the tree. Not because everyone's saying, Jesus, he's up there. Because the whole passage seems to point in the direction that Jesus had one thing in his mind. A man who needed to know his grace and his forgiveness. And so the whole tone of this opening sentence, even though it doesn't come across particularly strongly in our NIV translation, is that Jesus had only one thing in his mind, and that is he wanted to engage and have a meaningful encounter with this man who was blind from birth. And I think it's lovely just to remind ourselves that Jesus sees us as we really are. Again, there's no indication in the passage that this man cried out. You can imagine, perhaps, that he had heard about Jesus. Maybe he even heard that Jesus and the disciples were making their way along where he was begging. Maybe even some of his mates were saying, come on, here's an opportunity. We have heard that this guy can do amazing things. But there's no hint whatsoever that this man is crying, Jesus, over here, over here. The focus seems to be on the fact that Jesus knows that he is there, that Jesus sees him, that he knows his situation, that he understands his situation. And maybe if we're here this morning, and uh, maybe we're not yet a follower of Jesus, maybe the very reason you're here this morning is because you need to know that Jesus longs to have an encounter with you. He longs to meet with you at the point of your need because he cares deeply about you. And he longs to enter into a loving relationship with you and to introduce you to his Father God. But in contrast to that, the disciples seem to want to discuss the predicament. I mean, you can imagine the disciples, could you, saying, Jesus, look, here's the blind man. What can we do for him? After all, the disciples had been with Jesus on multiple times when Jesus did cracking things for people who were in real need. And so, maybe you could imagine that. Jesus, don't, don't rush past this guy. Do you know, we know that he's been here for years and years and years. Like, that would be a real feather in your cap. I just imagine the response of the crowds. Just imagine the difference this might make. Or maybe even just out of genuine sympathy. Jesus, here's a guy here, and he's been here for 
years and years and years. His whole life has been defined by his illness. He almost looks as if he's almost given up hope. Jesus, can we help him? Jesus, can we do something for him? Or could we even have a little whip round if we can't heal him and just help him out financially a little bit to give him a good day? But the disciples, they end up having some sort of theological question. How did he end up in this situation? Perhaps he just brought it upon himself. And of course, there was that view within some groups, uh, within the Jewish leadership, within the Pharisees. There were those that uh, believed that uh, because of uh, the sins of, of the parents, that in the end, the offspring could be affected in this way, almost like karma in, uh, in, in, in that sort of mystical sense of, of you know, you sinned in the, bad, in the past life and it'll come back to haunt you in the next and so on. And there was even a small group who believed you could sin inside the womb. That's crazy thinking about that. You kicked your mummy's stomach too much when she was pregnant or whatever. I don't know how a baby sins inside the womb. But there was a belief in biblical times among some of the Jewish scholars that you could even sin inside the womb. And these disciples, instead of seeing this person in need the way that Jesus saw him, they ended up wanting to have this discussion about whether he was worthy of our attention, whether he was worthy of Jesus' love, whether we should really take the time to stop and deal with his issue. But Jesus says to them, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus says, as long as I'm around, you know, I really don't want to get involved in questions and issues that ultimately don't matter. What matters to me is that those who are in darkness see the light. That those who ultimately, as we understand from later on in the passage, those who aren't only in physical darkness, but those who are in spiritual darkness, discover the revelation that I can bring to them. That I can reveal them grace and hope and forgiveness ultimately through my death upon the cross. And Jesus says, this is important. I really don't want to end up spending loads of time talking about how this man got into the situation he's in. The Father has called me to be light in the midst of the darkness. And I want in some way to bring light into the darkness of this man's life. Not just physically, but spiritually as well. And I think there's a lesson here for us. I think sometimes we end up pigeonholing people. People that we come across. Maybe even people that we work with. People that come along to the Alpha Course. People that come into our church. People that come into our community ministries. People that come into the food bank. People that come into CAP people that come into new creations and we end up pigeonholing them and we're less enthusiastic about really introducing them to Jesus because look at the mess you're in and without really trying to understand how dark their darkness is 
And unless we really make an effort to say, you know, the time is short and they need the light of God's glory and the light of the revelation of Christ more than anyone else, we end up getting sidetracked by saying, well, look at the mess their lives are in. If only they hadn't have done this, if only they hadn't have done that, if only whatever. You know, sometimes we can end up like the disciples. Instead of this compassionate ministry of Jesus, who just sees the person in their need, who just sees the person in their darkness, physical and spiritual darkness. In fact, this is the only incident in the Gospels where we have a man who's blind from birth. And in terms of the spiritual analogy, that's so clear. Because if we are spiritually in darkness, we are in darkness from the day we're born until the day when that darkness is lifted and we enter into the light of the glory of Christ. And so a little, perhaps, a little challenge there for all of us as Christians. Let's not judge the people who are in darkness. And let's not try and just, you know, say, well, how did they end up? It serves them right, you know, and and almost reluctantly invite them or almost reluctantly show something of the love of Christ to them. Let's just see them as who they are, people in darkness who need to walk in the light. And the second thing I want to say is that Jesus is able to restore people. Jesus doesn't end up throwing us along with so many other objects into the garbage can or into the bin. He longs to be able to restore us. And so in this particular situation, he spits on the ground. And again, even though we might think it's pretty awful, um, saliva was actually seen um, uh, in, in ancient centuries as possessing healing properties. I doubt if you can get it on prescription today, but, but, uh, but that's how it was in, in, in Bible times. As far as many people were concerned, it had. And then Jesus mixes it with the mud. It just sounds horrible, doesn't it? And, um, and again, we're not sure what the reason is for why he did that. Some commentators feel that, you know, God was made out of the dust or the mud of the earth. And, and out of that, man was created. And so when he takes the, the mud and the spittle, it's almost signifying an act of new creation in the life of this man. But whatever the reason, Jesus responds to him. And then he says to him, I want you to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man also needed to do something. And it wasn't particularly easy necessarily, because at this point the man couldn't even see. You know, he may have been at the pool of Siloam, but it still wasn't It still wasn't the easy. And you sort of wonder sometimes, why didn't Jesus, as he did with some other people, just say, be healed and be healed? But again, John highlights the fact that the man has to go and almost take Jesus at his word and go to the pool. And the pool of Siloam was almost like like an indoor swimming pool. You know, the word pool implies it was big enough where you could probably swim in it. So we're not just talking about a little thing, six by six or whatever. And uh, it's interesting that John highlights what Siloam means. 
Why does he do that? Because time and time again, John wants to say something important to us. And he says the word Siloam literally means sent. And that's because historically, uh, the water going into the Pool of Siloam was fed along different channels, um, you know, and, and that fed into the pool at one end and out at the other end. And so it became known as the scent pool because the water was sent from other uh, places uh, into the pool itself in order to fill it up. But John is saying something more. John is saying Jesus is the sent one. Yeah, that's part of his theme right throughout the whole of the gospel. He is the Messiah of God. He is the Christ of God. He is the sent one. And also the blind man has been sent as well. He's been sent by the sent one in order to find wholeness and healing and to be brought from darkness into light. So John particularly highlights this to emphasize both the response needed in the man and also the fact that the one who sent him was none other than the one who was sent from God. And the response is that his whole life was transformed. He ends up being able to go back to his family and uh, instead of sitting begging for lonely at the, the pool day after day, year after year, his whole life will have been changed. Not just because physically he was restored, but as we'll see in a moment, because he came to understand who Jesus was. And that's what happens, isn't it? Whenever we come into a living relationship with Jesus, whenever the scales of our eyes are lifted and we come to understand something of the love of God for us in Christ, then suddenly we say, why didn't I see it before? And suddenly our whole lives are transformed. As Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old has gone and the new has come. In the end, all of our lives are impacted through what Christ does for us. I just want to talk briefly for a couple of minutes to, to Michael. And uh, Michael's going to come and join me here at the front. And... Um, and um, I'm on blue here, is that okay? And uh, Michael, I, I just thought it might be good for you to give us like a down-to-earth illustration of what this really means. Because, there, I mean, like you've been a minister for like 50 years or something. And, uh, but there was a time south of Dublin as a young man when you were in darkness. Tell us what that meant for you. What did that, what did that look like? That doesn't, tell us about that sense of darkness and in the sense that you weren't able to appreciate anything of the wonder of what God had done for you in Christ. Well, darkness was normality because I didn't know what light was. I, I was brought up in a loving home, a mixed marriage, um, Catholic and Anglican, and I suppose when I was about 12, we had uh, some acres that we didn't farm, but we rented them out. And a farmer came and said, can you come and help me? He had a, a ewe that was carrying a lamb that was dead. 
So I went with him into an outhouse and we delivered the lamb. I just remember a profound sense of sadness as this lamb was lying on the straw covered in goo. And then we went out to the field to look at the rest of the flock and there was a ewe and the head of the lamb was presented. And very quickly we got the ewe to one side, lay her down and then delivered the lamb. And this little thing was lying on the grass to all extent of purposes. As far as I could see it was dead. But the, the old shepherd, he took some coarse grass and he cleared the nostrils. He opened its mouth and he blew. And then he, with a big gnarled finger, he rubbed its heart. And all of a sudden, this little lamb went, mm, and came to life. And as I process that today, I think that was the very first time I became aware there was something outside my subjective reality. And I think today I would say that it was in that moment that God's invisible world touched my visible world. And if you fast forward maybe 10 years, I, my life was in a little bit of a mess and I wasn't really sure whether I wanted to go on. But I thought I, I should pray. And so I, I'd met some folks and they told me uh, in a very loving, gentle way that I was a sinner. And I have to tell you that I got a little bit annoyed that they would call me a sinner after all. Um, who were they to tell me? They gave me uh, a Bible, the first one I'd ever had, and I began to read it to try to see if I could find something that would contradict what they were telling me. But it was like reading the telephone directory. I I couldn't make head or tail of it. But then when my life began to go a little bit into a mess, I felt that I needed to really see if there was a God because I wasn't sure. So very late at night I prayed, God, if you are real and if this gospel is true. I want you to come and do in my life what I've been told you can do. I woke up the next morning and I thought I'd better pray again just in case God didn't hear me because I had no idea how acute God's hearing was. (laughs) And I began to pray uh, again. I said, Lord, if this is true, I'm not going to tell anybody until somebody comes and says, Mike, you've changed. And about two, three days later, my twin brother came and said, Mike, what's happened? I said, what do you mean? He said, you're different. And I said, hallelujah. And he said, what? I said, Jesus is real. And he said, so what? And for the last 40 plus years, uh, he, he has said, I wish I have, I have your faith. And I've often said in response, God is very generous. And if you ask him for faith, he'll give you faith. Sadly, he hasn't yet asked. But my whole life turned around. And so just, could you give me three or four examples perhaps of different areas? Because when Jesus comes in and and brings you from that darkness into light. He, he, he transforms all of your life. I think I told you the story earlier of C.S. Lewis. He tells a story um, that, you know, you go along to the dentist because you've got a really sore tooth. And all you want to do is to get the sore tooth sorted out. But when the dentist looks into your mouth, he sees lots of other things that are wrong as well. And he says, no, just before you go, let me have a look at this. And then he makes another appointment for four weeks' time and another appointment for four weeks after that. And he won't let you go until he sorted out the whole of your mouth. And Lewis says God's a bit like that. Not, 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 I mean, it might be a bad illustration. But, uh, but in the sense that he wants to, to not just sort out one element of our lives, but whenever we come to know him, he wants his light to pervade every aspect of our behavior. I very quickly learned that if, if, if he was to be Lord, 
that meant that I had to submit. And I think the first thing for me was to recognize that as a 22-year-old, that um, quite partial to young ladies, that I needed to submit that area of my life to him. So I, I, I said, Lord, I will, I will wait for you. And I think I effectively waited for about six years. Uh, until, Worth waiting for? Absolutely. Until I went off to, to Bible college. I, I didn't uh, particularly want to go off to, to college. I thought when I finished college, I could go back to doing something else. But the Lord gave me no alternative. Um, so the whole direction of my life changed. And I'm so grateful to him. And that also included, you know, not just... Because, I mean, you, you could have had a fairly nice career in Greater Dublin, but you ended up, you know, initially perhaps thinking of going overseas, but ending up just serving God in ministry, which in many ways, physically and in terms of career-wise and financially, it, it, it wouldn't have looked a terribly bright thing to do. But it, it was about giving everything, yeah. Well, I remember very well when Anne and I got married, we went to her minister for marriage prep, and the only thing he really said to us is that what on earth are you going to Bible college for? Because you, you can't, it'll not qualify you for anything afterwards. And I looked at him straight in the eye and said, well, we don't really have a choice because we've said to the Lord we will do whatever, whenever, wherever. And uh, this is what he's made it very clear that we are to do. So that was the full extent of our marriage prep. Um, it seems to have worked okay. I think so. Folks, let's give it up for Michael. I'm just looking at the clock there and realizing that time is moving on, but, but I just thought it might be nice to illustrate in some senses, um, you know, the fact that even, even within the congregation, there was a time, even if we know Jesus now, when we, when we lived in darkness and, uh, but what it is to know the wonder when the Holy Spirit comes and, and, uh, and uh, softens our hearts and takes away the scales from our eyes and we see something of the glory uh, of Jesus. So not only is Jesus able to restore us, but thirdly, what we discover is that the blind man actually sees Jesus. Remember that he was healed before he even saw Jesus. But later on, he came to see Jesus. And I came across this little video clip, and, uh, and I just thought it was amazing. This is a guy who hasn't been able to see his wife for over 20 years. And uh, so let's just watch it on, on the side screens. Okay, Dan, now I'm almost ready to bring your hand out from your eyes, and you'll be able to see. Ready as I'll ever be. It's okay, honey. Everything's going to be okay. You're doing great, Dan. Here we go. Oh, my God. I might finally be able to see. <clears throat> I might finally be able to see my wife and daughter. Here we go. Now, you have to be oh very God. careful because your eyes will be sensitive to the light.
than I ever could have imagined. <laughs> I almost cried when I first saw that. The last few seconds, he looks at his wife and his little daughter and he says, you're more beautiful than I could ever imagine. And that's there right through this story. You see, initially, whenever people are asking this man, um, you know, who did this? And, of course, his response further down the road is, look, I I really don't know, but one thing I do know is that I was blind, but now I can see. But initially, whenever, you know, the the neighbors and so on said, you know, who did this? He just says, a man called Jesus. I, I don't even know who the bloke is. He was just a man called Jesus. And uh, that's in verse 11. And then in verse 17, whenever um, the the Pharisees start to interrogate him, he obviously has reflected a little bit further. And he thinks, you know, this guy must have been something out of the ordinary. And probably the most respectful position that he could attribute to Jesus from a spiritual point of view, that this man mustn't just have been a man, he must have been a prophet. And so he says, yeah, yeah, I think, I think it was a prophet who did it. But he still hadn't seen Jesus. And then further on down, uh, he's having a big debate with the Pharisees. And he says, look, I, I don't really think this man's a sinner because a sinner couldn't have done what he's done to me. So I, so I think this man must at least have come from God. You can see that he's on a journey and his revelation is becoming fuller and deeper. And then finally, in verse 38, he meets Jesus, like eye to eye, face to face for the first time. And Jesus says that I'm the Son of God. I'm the one who healed you. And he says, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. You can imagine him singing the song that we commenced our service with, although it wasn't written then. You can imagine him falling on the ground and looking up into the eyes of Jesus, like the guy there looking into the eyes of his wife and just saying, you're so beautiful. You can imagine this man who can't believe what has happened. It was a man. Maybe he was a prophet. Maybe he came from God. Truly you are the Son of God. And you can imagine him singing today. So here I am, Jesus, to worship you. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say you're my God. You are altogether lovely. You are altogether worthy. You're altogether wonderful to me. And I pray that that's been our experience. It's certainly been my experience. That the more you look into the eyes of Jesus, the more you appreciate all that he has done for you on the cross, the more you realize how amazing his grace is that day after day after day, week after week after week, even when we mess it up, his mercy is so expansive. He's given us a new start. 
He's given us a hope for all eternity. Oh, what a beautiful Savior. And I want to commend him to you this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and you realize that spiritually your eyes are blind. That you cannot see the glory of God in Christ. Maybe like Mike, you need to simply pray that prayer and you don't even need to pray it twice. And say, God, if you are there, by your Holy Spirit, will you show yourself to me? Will you come and heal me? Will you come and restore my sight? Will you come and open these blinded eyes? Will you come and lift me out of the darkness of sin and bring me into the glory of your light? And whenever Christ does that, the more we behold him, the more we see him, the more we appreciate him. Oh, how wonderful, how wonderful he is. So in a couple of moments, as we gather around the Lord's table, that's what we want to do. By faith, as we break bread and drink wine, we want to meditate, to reflect. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full on his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. If you're walking in the light, can I encourage you? Keep, keep looking at the face of Jesus and allow him to melt your heart. If your eyes are still blinded, why not pray in faith that simple prayer? Jesus, if you're real, will you soften my heart? Will you open my eyes? Will you lift me out of darkness into the light of your glory? For Christ's sake. Amen. Joy, come and lead us in a song before communion.